Well, it's almost the end of summer, and with it, the end of the traditional wedding season. I, uh, I wonder if you ever wonder whether you're married or not. Why do people do this? Why do people get married? Why do, why do they make this incredible commitment to live together, to have and to hold until death us do part? Surely there's an easier way to accomplish the purposes. Well, I think the, the answer, the, re- the reason people get married is pretty obvious, right? It's, it's love. That's why people get married. But how do you explain love? It is surely ineffable, too great to put into words. But at the very least, love involves a kind of compelling attraction of one person to another person. You, you see something in that other person that, 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 that compels you towards them. And so we get married. Then, having gotten married, the question immediately arises, now that we've gotten to know the person a little better, why does anybody stay married? Well, you might say, because you made a promise. You made a vow, and and you've got to keep that promise. The thing is, people break their promises all the time, don't they? If you talk to anybody who's been married for any length of time, they'll tell you what we all know, at least intuitively, a marriage that endures takes work. It's not just automatic, and it's not just carried along on the wings of love. Now, some of that work is the work of forgiveness. It's a work that's directed at the other person. But some of that work is directed at yourself, isn't it? If your marriage is going to last. We, we know as, as married people that if my marriage is going to endure, I need to work on myself. I need to work to continue to be the kind of person that my spouse would want to stay with, would want to stay married to. After all, most marriages fail not because of infidelity, but because of loss of affection. Somebody just wakes up one day and says, I don't love you anymore. Every marriage that endures requires commitment. It it requires a commitment to keep that promise that was made. But the wise spouse knows that commitment is easier when it's motivated by desire. And somebody wants to keep that commitment. Now, it's, it's not just marriage. Wherever commitments are made, the more you like the person that you've made that commitment to, the easier it is to keep the promise that you made to them. It is neither conspiracy nor coincidence that attractive, affable, likable people get hired faster, paid better, 
and advance in their careers quicker. It just seems to be the way the world works. We, we want to keep our commitments. We, we want to even do better than that. We want to bless and encourage the people that we like, the people that are attractive to us. Now, I think given that that's the way the world works, it's not surprising that we apply that same principle to God. Surely, the better we are, the, the, the more likable, the, the more pious or charitable or kind, the more God will like us, the, the more God would want to be with us. And, and that immediately maps on to the way the Bible talks about our relationship with God, because the Bible talks about our relationship with God as, as a marriage. And, and, of course, integral to any marriage is this, this promise to live together. And, and so as we approach our life with God, we, we, just, we just kind of assume, well, if my relationship with God is a bit like me living with God and God living with me, then, then this, is, this is clearly, this must clearly be about some kind of mutual attraction. And we assume that. And, and also, we assume the burden of maintaining that mutual attraction. I need to keep up my side of the bargain. I need to continue to be good so that God will continue to live with me. Well, that may be why we keep our promises. But is it why God keeps his? Well, to answer that question, we turn to Psalm 132. Psalm 132. It's found kind of right in the middle of your Bible. And I want to take a moment and read all of it now. So turn with me, if you would, to Psalm 132. And I'm going to read it to us. A song of ascents. Lord, remember David and all the hardships he endured and how he swore an oath to the Lord, making a vow to the mighty one of Jacob. I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not allow my eyes to sleep or my eyelids to slumber until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling for the mighty one of Jacob. We heard of the ark in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of Jar. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Rise up, Lord. Come to your resting place, you and your powerful ark. May your priests be clothed with righteousness, and may your faithful people shout for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not reject your anointed one. The Lord swore an oath to David, a promise he will not abandon. I will set one of your offspring on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my decrees that I will teach them, their sons will also sit on your throne forever. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his home. This is my resting place forever. I will make my home here because I have desired it. I will abundantly bless its food. I will satisfy its needy with bread. I will clothe its priests with salvation and its faithful people will shout for joy. There I will make a horn grow for David. I prepared a lamp for my anointed one. I will clothe his enemies with shame, but the crown he wears will be glorious. This is the longest of the Psalms of Ascent that we've been considering all summer. 
It's divided into two halves. Each half is 10 lines long, not verses, but 10 lines long. There's a beautiful symmetry and kind of parallelism that works through this psalm and that that structures it. The first half, verses 1 to 10, is a prayer. It's a prayer that God would live with his people. The second half is God's answer. And, And here's the point, if I could summarize it into just one hopefully pithy sentence. Here's the point of Psalm 132. God will keep his promise to live with you, but not because of you. God will keep his promise to live with you, but not because of you. So as summer ends and wedding season with it, and we ask and try to answer this question, why does God keep his promise to live with his people? We see in this psalm two answers, a faithful mediator and a faithful God. So two points, a faithful mediator and a faithful God. So first, a faithful mediator. Let's, let's look again at the first 10 verses of Psalm 132. Lord, remember David and all the hardships he endured and how he swore an oath to the Lord, making a vow to the mighty one of Jacob. I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not allow my eyes to sleep or my eyelids to slumber until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling for the mighty one of Jacob. We heard of the ark in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of Jar. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Rise up, Lord. Come to your resting place, you and your powerful ark. May your priests be clothed with righteousness, and may your faithful people shout for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not reject your anointed one. You can feel the movement in these first 10 verses, and that may explain one of the reasons that it's included in the Psalms of Ascent, which were sung as people were moving towards Jerusalem. It starts with with David searching for a permanent dwelling place for God. He's going from one place to another. He's not going to get into his bed until he's finished. So it begins with David's movement, and and, and then it shifts uh, beginning in in verse 6 to the people processing from Bethlehem, which is called Ephrathah here, where where they heard the decree issued that the place had been found, to Kiriath-Jerim, which is called Jar here. That's where the ark had been kept. And now bringing it, processing up with it to Mount Zion to worship the Lord. So there's all this movement in, in, in the first, really, seven verses. David moving around looking, the people moving, looking, wanting to be with God, to, to worship the Lord. But amidst all of this movement of the people, the request is made that God would move. Verse 8, rise up, Lord, come to your resting place, you and your powerful ark. And it's that prayer in verse 8 that brings us from from this remembrance of what had happened in the past with with David and the people and bringing the ark into Jerusalem to Mount Zion. it's, It's that prayer that moves us from the past to the need of the present. We don't actually know for sure the, the, the when or the where or the by whom of this Psalm. We, we, we just, we don't know, but it is most likely post exilic. 
after, after the exile. Now, why, why would we think that? Well, First Chronicles chapter 6, which was written after the exile, quotes our psalm. But the parallel in 1 Kings 8, which was written before the exile, does not quote our psalm. After the exile, the people are back in the land. They're back at home, as it were. But all is not right. The throne is empty. And so is the temple. And so the prayer there in verse 8 is that God would once again live among his people as he did before. That, that they might be filled with joy. That they might be clothed with righteousness. They want to be at home with the Lord again. Now, of course, that immediately raises the question, well, why weren't they? Well, the reason the people were exiled in the first place, the reason that the throne is empty, the reason that the temple was destroyed was the people's sin. Now, now, now sin is a, is a very religious word, and it often doesn't kind of mean anything these days. So what do we mean when we say sin? Well, the people had chosen to worship other gods rather than God. They had committed spiritual adultery. And so God had sent them away. He had sent them away to live with the gods that they had chosen out there among the nations. This is what sin is. It is a spiritual adultery. And just as adultery breaks a marriage, it breaks our relationship with God. God would would no more live with adultery than you would. Would you continue to live with your spouse if every night your spouse invited their lover to join you in bed? No, of course not. It would break the marriage. And so it does with our relationship with God. Just as Adam and Eve were banished from the Garden of God, Eden, just as Israel was was banished from the promised land. Because of our sin, because of our spiritual adultery, the decision to worship something other than God, to give our life to something other than the one who made us, because of this, just like all those before, we are separated from God. Now, in our psalm, the people are back in the land. But they're not at home there. They're not at home without God. And so their desire, their prayer, verse 8, is that God would once again rise up and move into the land with them, that he would be present with them again. That's their greatest desire. I wonder what your desires are. Is your, is your greatest desire the thing that kind of motivates you and and drives you through the day? Is it, is it the acquisition of more stuff? Is, is, it, is it greater financial security? Is it, is it success? Maybe, maybe that's your desire. Maybe that's what drives and motivates you. Uh, is, is just success in, in whatever it is that you're about, whether it's school or work or sports or, or whatever you've given yourself to. Maybe it's, maybe it's pleasure. Your greatest desire is just not be in pain. To, to feel good. You know, we spend a lot of time and energy pursuing all of these other things, and I think at, at root of it all, 
we're, we're spending a lot of time and energy trying to feel at home in the world. And, and we think that these things will do it. If I just had a little bit more money, if I just had a little bit more comfort, if I just had a better set of relationships, if I, if I had more success, I would finally feel at home here, comfortable, at ease, safe, and secure. The reality is we live in a world that is haunted by the memory of God's presence. We, we walk around in this world like a spouse walks around in an empty house that they once shared, maybe for decades, with another. And, and the, the, the emptiness of the house is unbearable. And so we, we try to exercise the, the ghosts of that memory with all sorts of activity and distraction. We, we try to redecorate the house so that it doesn't remind us of what we've lost. And yet the reality is we will never feel at home in this world unless we are at home in it with God. What we really need and what none of those other things that we pursue will we'll replace what we really need is God's return. Oh, but given our spiritual adultery, given Israel's spiritual adultery, how can we even ask? What, 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 what right would we have to even ask for God to come back? Is it, is it that we've, we've cleaned ourselves up? We've learned our lessons? We've, We've turned over a new leaf. Is it, is it that, well, I can ask God to come back to me. I can, I can, I can enjoy the, the reality of his presence in my life because, because I'm going to do better this time. Well, that is not our psalm's appeal. It's interesting. Uh, both the first half and the second half of the psalm begin and end with references to David. In, in the first half, it, it, it it begins and ends by asking God to remember David. In, in verses 1 to 5, the psalmist is asking God to remember David's commitment to finding a place for the ark. He, he was putting God's interests above his own. He, he wasn't going to rest until he had found a resting place for his God. He, he points to the hardships that David endured and, and his faithfulness. And then at the end, in verse 10, he concludes, Lord, Lord, come back, live with us again for the sake of David. Your servant. Okay, so just consider that logic for a minute. Take us back, Lord, because someone else was faithful. That's crazy talk. I mean, God forbid, if I were unfaithful to Adrian, can you imagine what she would say if I came back to her and said, Adrian, please take me back, you know, because, because Daniel's been really faithful to Ashley. She wouldn't even bother to laugh. She would just slam the door. And rightly so. Take us back because someone else has been faithful? It sounds crazy. But it's not as crazy as it seems. You see, David wasn't just any Israelite. He wasn't even just a great king. David, like Moses before him and Abraham before him, was a covenant Mediator. 
between God and Israel. Now, that's not a term that just flows off the lips, covenant mediator, but it's one that you need to understand. We think of mediators, we use them today, we think of mediators as people who resolve disputes, right? So, so you know, the labor unions might, might call in the, the National Labor Relations Board and they would give a mediator to try to settle a dispute between management and, and labor. But, but that's not really what's in view here. In the ancient Near East, a covenant mediator actually stood as a representative a representative between two parties in a covenant. In this case, the two parties in the covenant, the relationship, were God and all of God's people. But but God enters into that covenant through the agency of a mediator who represents all those people that stand behind him, but who also represents God. Now, if the mediator was faithful to the covenant, all of the promises of the covenant would flow to all of those people standing behind the mediator that the mediator represented. But if the mediator was not faithful to the covenant, then all of the curses, all of the, the consequences of breaking the covenant would flow to all of those people that stood behind him as well. Now, David was not perfect. He was not sinless. But David was faithful. And it's on the basis of his faithfulness that the psalmist now offers his prayer. That that the people now begin to pray. They point to David's faithfulness. And they say, restore the throne. Don't reject your anointed one. Restore the temple. Come back to your resting place, not for our sake, not because we were faithful, but for his sake, because he was faithful on our behalf. David was indeed faithful, and we know from history that God answered this prayer, at least in part. The temple was rebuilt. The people returned to the land, but David was not perfect. And neither were any of his sons. If this prayer, if this prayer that God would would rise up and come to his resting place, if this prayer that God would once again clothe his people with righteousness, if this prayer that God would once again allow his people to shout with joy, if this is going to be fully answered, a better mediator is needed and a better covenant. And the good news is that's exactly what we have in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus descended from David in his humanity, but also descended from heaven, fully divine, the the son of God, and therefore perfectly suited to be the perfect mediator between God and man. Like his father, David, Jesus committed himself to establishing a a, a house, to to finding a, a, a dwelling place. For God, And he, he did it first in his own person, simply by taking on human flesh, God in the flesh. But then he goes a step further. And having perfectly obeyed God in everything, he offered himself as a sacrifice. Suffering the, the banishment from God on the cross that, that you and I deserve. 
He died our death. He suffered our exile in our place so that all who appeal to him, all who who repent of trying to commend themselves to God and instead believe in him, might finally be at home with God. Now in this world and forever. Jesus was faithful to the very end. And God rewarded that faithfulness by raising Jesus from the dead so that we can now pray for the sake of your servant Jesus. May we be clothed in his righteousness. For the sake of your servant Jesus, may we shout for joy in your presence. If if you're not a Christian, we want you to understand that this is what the gospel is all about. It is about coming to an end of appealing to yourself and trying to commend yourself to God as attractive enough, good enough to be accepted. And and instead, simply trusting in Christ that he was good enough, that, that he was faithful enough. If you are thinking about this, if you're maybe even confused about this, but would like to understand more. I'd love to talk to you more about this. You can find me afterwards. I'll be kind of standing up front. You could contact us at the church. We, we would love for you to understand what it means to stop having to depend upon yourself to be good enough for God and to instead to begin to depend upon Jesus Christ alone. Now, now Christian, you understand, this is why we pray in Jesus' name. It, it, it's not just a little thing that we do. No, there's, there's deep and profound theological significance to praying in the name of Jesus. It's also why when somebody else is praying and we're listening and kind of following along with them, when they're done praying in Jesus' name, we say, and we should say out loud, amen. Yes, I agree with that. And I am also praying that prayer with them In Jesus' name. All the blessings of God. All the answers to our prayers come to us through Jesus. On the basis of his obedience. In accordance with his will. The point of verses 1 to 10 is not to tell you, Christian, to try harder to be like David to try harder to be like Jesus. No, the point of verses 1 and 10 is to depend on Jesus' faithfulness even as they depended on David's faithfulness. And so we pray not in our own name. We pray not according to our efforts. We pray in the name of Jesus. And then we seek to align our desires, our prayers with his. What's Jesus' desire? His desire is that we would know God, his Father, more and more. For the greatest gift that God can give us is himself. So as you think about your own prayers, is this what you desire? Are are, are your prayers filled with the desire to know God more, to have God more present in your life? To, to, to see God 
in the person of Jesus Christ formed more fully in you and in those around you. Brothers and sisters, I don't know if God is going to answer your prayer to, to be healed of cancer. I don't know if God is going to answer your prayer to, to give you a new or a better job. I don't know if God is going to answer your prayer that, that the kids will turn out all right. I don't know. But I know that as you pray, that God would fill you more and more. That you would know him more and more. That you would be more and more at home in him. That we as a church would be more and more at home in him. Oh, I know that God will answer that prayer. So let that prayer take up more and more of your time. Well, why would God do this in the first place? Why would he provide a faithful mediator? Why why would he even want to live with us, given what kind of people we are? Well, that leads, second, to our faithful God. Look at verse 11. Our faithful God. The Lord swore an oath to David, a promise he will not abandon. I will set one of your offspring on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my decrees that I will teach them, their sons will also sit on your throne forever. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He's desired it for his home. This is my resting place forever. I will make my home here because I have desired it. I will abundantly bless its food. I will satisfy its needy with bread. I will clothe its priests with salvation. And his faithful people will shout for joy. There I will make a horn grow for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed one. I will clothe his enemies with shame. But the crown he wears will be glorious. Well, like the previous section, this one also begins and ends with a reference to David. But this time it's God speaking, not not the psalmist. This is his answer to the psalmist's prayer. And rather than remember David's oath, To God, God recalls God's oath to David. You see that there in verses 11 and 12. It's an an oath that he will not abandon. Made it in 2 Samuel chapter 7. You can go read the full thing later. But but it was a promise to, to set one of David's offspring on David's throne forever. And so long as his sons kept the Lord's covenant, the throne of David would not end now we've already talked about this a little bit i mean right away right right beginning with solomon all of david's sons failed but christ did not fail christ descended from david he kept god's decrees perfectly and so he is worthy of the fulfillment of this promise he is worthy to be seated on the throne friends this is what the resurrection is all about It's not just that Jesus Christ's resurrection from the dead is proof that God accepted his sacrifice. It is that. Bottom line, it is definitely proof that God accepted his sacrifice. But it is more than that. Jesus Christ was raised from the dead in order to reign, in order to rule. His resurrection and ascension to heaven is a demonstration that God kept his promise to David. The throne is not empty. And that means if you are a Christian, Jesus has a claim on your life. 
I, I, I grew up in, in the church, and, and I grew up hearing the gospel. And to me, for most of my growing up, the gospel was all about being saved from my sins in the past so that I could have a future in heaven someday. But I never could figure out what the gospel had to do with the present. Friends, this is what the gospel has to do with the present. Jesus is sitting on the throne, and he has a claim on your life to reign over it today, to rule over your life. He didn't just give his life for you so that you could go on your merry way with your life and have a, have a ticket to heaven someday. No, he commands your allegiance now. He commands your worship and your love now. To become a Christian is not just to be forgiven. It is to bend the knee to this king. To order your life according to his word. To be incorporated into his people as we demonstrate today. And to follow him in everything that he has commanded. You know, we live in an age that is dominated by what sociologists are calling expressive individualism. That's the belief that the highest liberty we can know, the, the greatest fulfillment, the greatest kind of human flourishing that we can know is the ability to define your own identity, your own path, according to, to whatever resonates within you as, as your truth. And, and frankly, I've got I've to say, that makes a lot of sense if no one is on the throne of heaven. Friends, there is someone sitting on the throne. His name is Jesus. He won that throne at the cost of his own life, and that means that our highest liberty, our greatest flourishing is found in his service. His lordship has set us free from a, a kingdom of darkness and slavery in that kingdom, a slavery to our own passions and our own desires that we had no ability to say no to. He has rescued us from that kingdom, and he has brought us into his kingdom, a kingdom of life and light. We are no longer slaves, but sons and daughters. Paul says that, that part of the problem with being a slave, and there are many, is that a slave has no permanent place in the family. No matter how well you're treated as a slave, you've got no permanent place there. You are at any moment liable to be homeless. Oh, but a son, a daughter, always has a home. Is never at risk of being homeless. This is what living under the lordship of Christ means for us. Finally, able, free, to be all that we were created to be, which is sons and daughters of God. Now, why would God keep this promise, knowing that it would cost him so much? Why, why wouldn't God just start over? I mean, when Adam and Eve blew it, why not just say, yeah, I'm done with you. I'm starting over, you know, with, with, with others. Or, or why not just say, Ah, uh, this whole creation thing, it is definitely not cracked up to what I thought it was going to be. I don't need creation anyway. I'm God. I'm perfectly happy in myself. I'm just going to go on being God by myself, happy in myself, fulfilled in myself, and we'll just be done with all of that. Why would God even bother? He doesn't need our love. He doesn't even need our service. We, we need 
to serve him. He doesn't need us to serve him. He's not lacking anything without us. Why would he bother? The answer is found in verse 13. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his home. The reason that that God made the promise, the reason that God kept the promise, the reason that God bothered at all is simply and purely because he loved us. It is simply his electing love. He chose Zion. That's the language of election. He desired to dwell among his people. This had been the plan from the beginning with Adam. And the plan had not changed. It's God's purpose. It's God's choice out of sheer unmerited love that he would bless his people, that he would make the land abundant, that he would, that he would satisfy all its needs. Uh, verse 15, that he, that he would clothe the priest with salvation, that he would fill the people with joy. Verse 15 and verse 16. Those verses there, verses 14 to, to 16, they are a poetic picture of Eden all over again. And God would do this through this, this horn that he raises up. Verse 17, a victorious descendant of David named Jesus. Jesus is a a lamp, a a light for the nations, the light of the world. Jesus' crown is glorious. I I, I can't stress this enough because this is the very heart of what makes the good news of the gospel such good news. The reason God sent his son, the reason Christ died on the cross, the reason he got up from the dead and now reigns from heaven is the sheer electing love of the triune God. He doesn't desire to dwell with his people at such cost because they're better than everybody else. He doesn't desire to live with you, his people, because there's something he needs from you. He doesn't desire to live with you, to be your God, to love you in this lavish and abundant way because there's something that you can give him. God desires to be with his people for no other reason than he desires to be with his people. He loves you because he loves you, not because of anything about you. Christian, your thoughts about God are too small, too narrow, too mean. God is a promise-making and a promise-keeping God, and God is also love. His love utterly unmerited. His love promised His presence with us. His presence in the person of Jesus Christ displayed His love. And that love at the greatest of costs, fulfilled his promise. This is our faithful God. God keeps his promise to live with you 
Not because of you, but for sheer unmerited love for you. You can't think about that enough. You can't dwell on that enough. Does that not motivate your joy? Does that not cause deep wells of love to overflow? Does does that not motivate your worship of him? That he loves you just because he does? That there's nothing more you can do to make him love you more? That there's nothing that you can do to make him love you less? If you are in Jesus Christ, God has chosen you out of sheer, unmerited love. Oh, Christian, you need to rest in that. You need to think about that more. Because it is that, that love, that is the fuel of all of your worship and the motivation for all of your obedience. If you're not a Christian, you need to understand that the alternative to being clothed with the joy of his love is to be clothed with the shame that is reserved for his enemies. You don't need to be a better version of you in order to earn his love. You simply need to trust that in Christ he has loved you. When you do, you will find that you lose nothing worth keeping and gain everything worth having. I began by thinking about why we keep our promises and why God keeps his. Praise God that he is not like us. We keep our promises because of the the loveliness, the, the worthiness of the one that we made the promise to. If God were like us, ours would be the most anxious and uncertain of relationships. What if we're not good enough? What if God graves on a curve and someone else was better? But friends, God is not like us. Out of his faithful love, he has given us a faithful mediator. And our assurance is in him, in the faithful obedience of Christ and the faithful, unconditional, electing love of God. Put your faith the only one who is worthy of Jesus, the faithful mediator of a faithful God. Would you pray with me? Take just a moment. Maybe think of some of those ways that that you have been wrongly thinking that, that you have to earn God's love, that you have to be something in order to be worthy of God's love. Just confess those things to him. Lord God, we confess that we are not worthy of your love, but Jesus is. He is worthy of your love. And so all of our hope, all of our faith, all of our trust 
is in him and not in ourselves. Lord, we ask that you would allow us then to live in the joy of such trust. A trust placed in the one who is worthy of such trust. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.